The Stalk Talks podcast brings you intelligent discussions of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you. Remove our inner critic and open our inner, you know, curiosity. You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, slam your fist on the table, so... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Something has to change. Welcome back to another episode of Stalk Talks. I'm Tom. And I'm Zoe. June is LGBT Pride Month. On top of that, we're in the middle of the Euro Cup football tournament. Here in The Hague, whole streets are decorated with strings of small orange flags and there is widespread interest in matches by those who do not usually follow football. So this week, we focus specifically on LGBTQ in sports, particularly the stigma that is still attached to homosexuality in football and the issue of transgender participation in high-level sporting events. In fact, just this week, NFL player Carl Nassib came out as gay and he's the first active player to do so. Absolutely, Tom. Now, the Gay Krant is a Dutch publication focusing on the LGBTQ community here in the Netherlands, but it is also the largest publication of its kind in the Benelux countries. And it recently published an article which states that almost half of Dutch football players do indeed support more open discussion of homosexuality and coming out in football. However, the fact is there are very few examples of openly gay football players if you look at the last decade. So so this has yet to happen. Perhaps Carl Nassib will get the ball rolling. But as a result, we are very, very happy to welcome today Editor-in-Chief of the Gay Crunch, Rick van der Maarde, to our show. Welcome, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for, um, for having me. It's, it's going to be an exciting episode because we have many different topics to talk about, and especially with a lot of current events happening as well. But one of the first topics that we want to talk about starts with the homosexuality in football and, and other mainstream sports. So part of the reason that we found uh, that the continued reluctance for people to come out as homosexuality in high football is due to the macho culture and the corresponding low tolerance for homosexuality, uh, particularly among fans. Is this the case for, for all football-loving nations? Well, I just, you have to know that the research was done by the John Blankenstein Foundation in the Netherlands, which is founded by the sister of John Blankenstein. John Blankenstein was the first openly gay football player and referee in the the Netherlands. He passed away and his sister, Karen, uh, is one of GayCon's ambassadors. And she uh, founded the John Blankenstein Foundation and they they did this research on the acceptance of, of LGBTI in, in football. And there are quite some interesting things to say about it. What you men- what you already mentioned is that 50% of the players state that there can be more openness towards LGBTI in, in sports in general and in football or soccer particularly. The reasons why players do not come out, what they mention is the fear of not being able to be transferred abroad. So they say, well, the Netherlands are not the problem. The problem is what to do when you're gay and you have to be transferred to Russia, to Italy, to Spain, to Saudi Arabia, whatever. The fans, and this is what I, um, because I called Karen, like, I think two weeks ago to talk about the fan and the fan clubs. 
And she stated really quite firmly that that still has to be uh, researched. So it is not said that the clubs, you know, the football fans around the players are the problem. Uh, because she said, we see different things. We see indeed the rainbow flag hovering above the Feyenoord Stadium in Rotterdam. It's a feeling, she said, so it still has to be researched. But we have the feeling that they are not the problem. The fear is the masculinity within the group itself. That is one thing. The second fear is the, the non-possibility of transferring abroad. Those are the two main reasons. And I, I mean, I would imagine also it fans in other countries where, as you say, there's less tolerance. Yeah. Those fans could also probably be, be a problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you have to separate the fans in the Netherlands yeah. and the fans abroad because they are really scared of the, well, what we call the, the, the choirs, so the singing and the, the, the harsh uh, lines they sing when players come onto the field. We all know the, the, the problems that the colored players have yeah. with the, uh, the jungle sounds and, and throwing bananas on the grass. And it, it's horrible. You know, it's horrible. And when you're alone and you, you go out there on the field and there are 30,000 people screaming, uh, he's gay, he's gay, or something, you know, whatever they sing. I can imagine it, it doesn't help to come out. Understatement. No, it doesn't help. So it is, a, it is an international thing, like the solidarity within the LGBTI community, also fighting LGBTI phobia and, and toxic masculinity, as, as to put it like that, is also international, is an international battle we have to fight together. Yeah, well, maybe we can just pick up on that, Rick, because we were just, before we started, we were just talking about developments in Hungary and Poland, and, and this has really been brought to the fore by the, the Euro Cup, and we have the example of the stadium in, in Germany that they, they didn't want to light it up with the, with the rainbow colours. Just tell us a little bit more about how these dynamics, because it's actually fascinating how that's working, both positively and negatively for LGBTQ communities in, in the sporting world. Well, I think, as, as we already discussed it, that the more pressure you put on the LGBTI community, the more solidarity there is shown and the, the more solidarity there is within the community, but also from affiliates who support us outside the community. So that I think that goes together. So what you see is that as soon as Hungary or Orban mentioned the anti-LGBTI laws in this country, you see this huge movement of solidarity with the LGBTI community in the rest of the world. And I don't think it is a coincidence that Carl Nassif from the Las Vegas Raiders comes out at this moment. I think it has to do with the fact that things are going on, that the, the European Championship is playing at the moment, that Hungary comes out with this law. I think he just said, well, enough is enough. I just have to come out now. And where something is closing, something else is opening up somewhere else. So what I want to say is, yes, we have a setback in Hungary. Yes, we have a setback in Poland. But the, the whole movement cannot be stopped. It is a worldwide movement towards opening, towards more solidarity, towards more visibility. And what Carl Nassib shows is that that is the only way we can take because there is no way back. We don't go back to medieval times where we have to hide and in which we cannot be who we want to be. There are setbacks, but the overall 
evolvement, the overall movement is towards more openness. I think that's a really powerful statement. And and we're going to stay in America for a little bit because there was another study that was recently published, which spoke about homophobia and anti-LGBTQ sentiment, that it's still highly present in sports and that it found that it was present in both younger and older fans. But that traditional notions of masculinity, that they are often linked with sports prowess. So, so how can we change this this mindset of looking at sports prowess or, or sports performance and separating it perhaps from the individual or from that culture? I think we have to move together with all movements which fight toxic masculinity. As I told you before, I see a clear line between the LGBTI emancipation in the Netherlands and the women's uh, liberation movement in the 60s and 70s of the last century, by which I mean we both fought a toxic masculinity. And Karen Blankenstein also said, well, we did the same research among hockey players. So we had the soccer players and we had the hockey players, and the results were almost the same. So there is no difference between anti-LGBTI feelings in the top of soccer and the top of hockey, which means that it goes around in all fields of sports. So we have to hold hands and we have to fight together and saying, just come out. It is safe to come out. And we have to provide all the, the necessary measures for players to come out, which means safety, safe environment, money, still being contracted by big clubs. You know, all those things have to be guaranteed for players to be able to come out safely. What we saw in, in Hollywood in the 50s, in the 40s, in the 50s, as soon as you came out as a gay actor or a gay actress, you didn't get any chance to play because you were labeled as gay. This is a problem. This is what you were saying. I mean, I think here in, in the Netherlands and other Western European countries, it, it's perhaps safer to come out as gay. But as you mentioned to us, if you are going to be transferred as a football player yeah. to, say, Russia, don't think it's so friendly there. And that makes it yeah. really a global problem. Exactly. That's how it works. So you cannot say to a soccer player in, in that top class, if you want to make your money in Russia, don't go to Russia. I mean, it's not up to me to decide for them. But when you're gay and, and you want to play in Russia, you cannot come out. That's how it is. In that perspective, it's a choice. Or you transfer to a country which is less liberal than the Netherlands, and then you shut up. Or you go to like England or Germany or some European or American club, and then you open up. I think what's interesting, Ricky, you sort of spoke about the, the steps that need to be taken so that people don't have to make this decision, whether to either shut up or not be able to play there. You said, well, more people need to come out. There needs to be big clubs. Carl did a fantastic job of being the first because I think nobody wants to be the first to come out. And then hopefully that inspires others. Well, f first of all, it's the first male coming out, which is an important thing to say, because mm -hmm. when you when you look at female soccer, it's no problem at all. So uh, lesbian uh, soccer players, they, they come out, there is hardly any problem. So it is a, a male problem. But that's what we're saying. You know, sports has traditionally been very associated with masculinity in its most so-called pure form. But how could we disengage those two? And if you look at somebody like Carl, he looks like the epitome of masculinity, a massively muscled yeah. young man. So that sense, he looks the part, but then we hear, oh, but you're gay. How can we decouple those two? By starting to, to write differently about those things. So like everything is connected in sports 
when we go to tennis, for example, everybody talks about the huge achievements of Djokovic and uh, Nadal. But the greatest player of all times is Serena Williams. Women are not only less visible in history and in power, but also the people writing about history and writing about women are men. So are straight men, mostly, which which makes it really difficult for women and also for the LGBTI to come up, to write about themselves and to be heard in mainstream media. Why is that, Rick? Why, why is there such a, a male-centric reporting in, in sports and in, in... It's just a historic thing. I mean, like like what you said, eh? uh, Carl uh, uh, Nassib is the first to come out. No, that's not true. He's the first male to come out. Eh? So we, we, we forget the females. We forget the women when we talk about these things. And I think we have to change that by starting with women, by starting with gay, by starting with LGBTI. So if you know what you're saying, it's important how you say things as a journalist, as a writer, as someone who writes opinions or, or columns or articles. That's where it has to start. I, I think it's a hugely complex problem and it will take time. But I agree. I think the narrative needs to change yeah. and that will happen bit by bit. Yeah. It is happening already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But perhaps we can look now at this. It's also connected with gender and sports, but it's the, almost the other side uh, of the picture. We see alternative form of bias in the current conversation on transgender participation in women's sport, because we've been speaking a lot about women in sport. We most recently saw how some states in America, such as Florida, have passed bills preventing participation of some some transgender individual in the sports. This is a question of often it seems to come down to women who are considered to be too masculine to participate as women. Yeah. How do you view these developments and how do they help inform our understanding of this broader debate? Th that narrative also has to change. That's my opinion. And it, it can be changed because if you want to change, we can change it. So Laurel Hubbard is uh, one of the transgender uh, women who now comes out for the Olympics. And then you see that we can measure the level of testosterone in blood, you know, and you say, okay, you can join the male uh, club, uh, the, the male players uh, or the female players. She went from, in her transition, she went from man to woman. So you can be part of the woman Olympics, but your testosterone level has to be below, I don't recall exactly, like four, four nanometer uh, in 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 a liter of blood. I, I, we can re-describe the boundaries. We can re-describe the, the rules people have to apply to. So if we say, okay, we open up society towards more diversity in gender, so the non-binary people also have to open up, are also busy with their transformation and visibility in society, then sports have to follow that as well. So that narrative has to change as well. The old binary system of male-female, we can, we can still keep up with that, but there has to be something that answers the, the fact that there are people in between, that there are non-binary people playing sports. And it is up to us to come with the regulations and the rules in which they can perform their sports. So I see it also as a, as a new narrative, a new assignment society has to do. I think assignment is a is a good way to put it. I think what's tricky is the discussion, of course, speaks about multiple 
aspects of it. So on one hand, people who might uh, have transitioned into being a woman and have, have always felt as a woman, but simultaneously have certain attributes or a, a muscle mass, like what we spoke about, testosterone, which makes it difficult to compete against people who have a different muscle mass. So is, is testosterone the most effective means of, of measuring that and sort of going forward with that? It, I think it is a start, but like like what we see in the, in the Netherlands now, that with the younger football players, like six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, that girls and boys are playing together. So instead of separating them, we bring them together. And that's also a way. So we, instead of separating you know, each and everyone in their single closet, we can also say, let's open up and see what happens. And if the binary and non-binary come together and we can make a team that works, uh, you can also count the level of testosterone of a whole team. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, everything is possible, but that's what I mean by na by narrative. If we want to change, we have to change the narrative of, of sports and we can open up. To me, there are no boundaries. I mean, play together, you know, like, like binary and non-binary because the, the, the transgender, like Laurel Hubbard, she went from male to female and she wants to be seen as a female so she is a she whereas the non-binary are saying well i'm not you know i'm in between i'm not a he i'm not a she i want to be uh, addressed by the word they or as a person as a person exactly as a person with no gender so let's open up and let's see what ha what happens. From opening up, we can rewrite the regulations and we can rewrite the rules. And of course, there, there is biology. So I have more testosterone than a woman, but that, that is something biological. And you can see it in two ways, or you can be restricted by biology and say, that's the case, uh, discussion closed, or we can go beyond biology and say, okay, we are humans and let's see what lies beyond biology and can we come together as soon as biology breaks its boundaries and opens up? I think this is what then brings us to thinking more generally about sports and gender. And, and from what you've been saying, I think the, the issue really to me, it seems to lie with our concept of gender, which is binary. It's highly binary. It has been highly. for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's a lot of people who are very attached to the binary notion of gender. They don't want to give it up, as we see in Poland, in the Vatican. But as you also said, if we see it even from a biological perspective, there may well be women who have higher levels of testosterone than some men. So in that case, we do just go purely on testosterone. You may find yourself still getting a mixed gender team based on levels of testosterone. So again, it just seems to me like these notions of gender are not that helpful, particularly if we're talking about sport. How do you see that? What I say is don't, don't be restricted by biology. And even if you want to be restricted by biology, there are other possibilities of measuring, like the measurement of whole teams or the measurements of competition or whatever. I'm not a huge sports person but I played volleyball and there was a huge sense of masculinity within my team but I had no problem at all coming out being gay you know I was just one of them bring in as a gay as the only gay in a, in a team you bring in new sort of vibe you know you bring in a sort of that toxic masculinity comes down a bit. It's, it's subtle but it is it, it is working. Um, so that's what I say we have to open up. We have to be sure that people can come out safely uh, and we can start changing the narrative of sports in general. And by that, I mean the, the narrative of gender. 
of binary, non-binary, of biology, of testosterone. And if we want to change it, we can change it. That's how it works. Like with Laurel Hubbard, we, we, we can set new boundaries. We can measure testosterone. And if you want to do that, we can do it. And instead of saying, you cannot be part of the female Olympic team, we can start by saying, okay, you're welcome. And then we'll see how we're going to do it, how we are going to measure it, and how we are going to adapt the regulations. And that's what I try to bring out as a message. Start with the change. And then we rewrite the regulations. I think what you show really well, Rick, is the, the nuance that is necessary in this discussion. Because we often we see one or two sides. We see some people say all for inclusion and some people say, no, that doesn't work at all. And if just the two sides would come together, I really like the example you gave of doing mixed sports and putting everyone together. Because it not only could contribute to the, the inclusion, but simultaneously also to further lowering that masculinity. Because if there is that mix, that might... Yeah, make huge changes on the long term. So I, I think that creative thinking and that open attitude is really valuable. Yeah, I think as well. And I don't mind binary teams. I mean, I, I like watching soccer with men. I like watching soccer with only women. But there has to be the possibility of people not wanting to be part of one of them to group together as well, or to be part of that male or female group as well. That's what I'm trying to say. So you have to open up. I do not say we have to abolish, you know, all masculinity in sports, or we have to open up all sports uh, towards mixed uh, teams. No, not at all. But just start with opening up your mind and saying, okay, what can I do? Like Wayne Alden with his one love, you know, uh, Captain Ben on his arm. What can I do to make a change? And it can be very subtle. It can be very subtle. But there are so many people falling out because they are non-binary and they cannot find a way in that binary system. And th that's what worries me. And you have to opt for that like third class of sports where we can meet and where we can see what happens if we come together and if we have to make new regulations and new rules on sport. I think it's very interesting. I wholeheartedly agree with you, Rick, and this has been a fascinating conversation about, about this topic. But for now, we just want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you um, for having me, and uh, it was a great pleasure uh, talking to you. Absolutely. The pleasure was all our, all ours. And, and to our listeners, if you'd like to find out more about the, the articles, these viewpoints, the conversation, and, and perhaps the narrative that Rick is trying to change, you can find that on www.gay if you do want to find out more or you want to check out previous episodes of our podcast you can find us on anchor facebook uh, or instagram and more recently we've done an episode on cider that you can uh, check out uh, lastly you can watch the full unedited interviews on our youtube channel called stock talks thank you all for tuning in this week for this episode of the stock talks podcast and we look forward to welcoming you back in the next